Welcome to this workshop on relapse and recovery. My name is Laura. I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Hi, everyone. Please join me for a moment of silence in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The format for this session is as follows, three speakers for 20 minutes each, followed by 15 minutes of question and answers, finishing up with 15 minutes of open pitches. This session is being taped, so you will need to sign the tape release form if you are going to share. Please turn off all cell phones for the duration of this meeting, and remember that it is against our tradition of anonymity to take photos during the meeting. The topic for this session, as I mentioned, is uh, relapse and recovery, and our first speaker is Marsha. Please join me in welcoming Marsha. Hi, everyone. My name is Marsha. I'm a compulsive overeater and food addict. Hi. Well, I'm here to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now and to share my experience, strength, and hope. And um, hope is a pretty big word. When I was in relapse, I felt pretty hopeless. And I'm going to start by telling you that I first went to OA 25 years ago. And at that time, I was pretty hopeless also, but not nearly as hopeless as when I came back a little over two years ago. And I went to OA. I, became, I heard things that I had never heard before. I heard the concept of a physical addiction and a mental obsession. I heard that I ate like an alcoholic drinks, and when I take, took the first bite from morsel of any of the foods to which I am addicted, something happens to me bodily and mentally that sets me apart from other people. And it did every time I had proven it. And I unfortunately had to prove it again to myself when I went into relapse. But at that first um, experience in OA, I did become abstinent within about a week of going to my first meeting. And they talked about a higher power. I decided that there definitely was a higher power back then, something that I had never really thought either way about, pro or con. I'd never really said there is or there isn't. It simply wasn't a, a, um, a point for me to ponder. And, but they talked about a higher power back then, and I thought, that's interesting. I wonder how a higher power could help me with what I do with food. And about a week after um, I came into OA, I was supposed to be a volunteer at an athletic event, and I was supposed to stand in front of a box of cookies, and I'll tell you, the box was as big as this podium. And... Um, and hand them out to all these people. And this really incredible miracle happened. I didn't eat one. And I said, if this can happen for me, there must be a higher power. So I took to OA, and I went with it, and I ran with it. And I threw myself into going to meetings. Sometimes I would go to two a day. 
And I developed a, a little program. And um, where's the timer, by the way? Okay, thank you. And I developed a little program where, um, where I went to meetings, I did some service, we put on a few day and OAs. Um, I, I had a food plan, I had some sponsors, and uh, I did all those things. And I, I worked the steps too. I, I was in a group, an AWOL they called it back then, stood for a way of life. We worked through the steps. I did a fourth step, I gave it away, and that's about as far as I went with the steps. And I look back now and I wonder, hmm, I wonder if that's one of the reasons I relapsed. I didn't go any further with the steps. But anyway, time went on, and I, did, and I was in program and active, and things changed. I used to go to meetings and I would say in the meetings that my life didn't even resemble what it looked like when I had first come into OA. So one year, two years, five years, ten years. And um, I thought I would never relapse. I thought it was a done deal. This was uh, my life. This was going to be, and it was going to be easy forever. And people said maybe I was on a pink cloud. And I don't know. I don't know. I did a certain amount of things. Pink clouds are when you don't work and you, and you just get abstinent and you stay abstinent. But I did do some work, and um, and things changed. So I was very happy. I got married, and um, while I was happy, there was this underlying restless, irritable, and discontent, and that I never dealt with. I didn't know that those were what I've been later told signs of untreated addiction. And I'd never, um, I hadn't gone past the fifth step. And the way I've recently done an inventory is totally different than the way I did it back then. But that, that was then. So then the relapse happened. And I don't remember taking the first bite that set off the physical addiction and the mental obsession. I don't know. I, I, I thought, I remember this guy one time bringing over to our house a box of, of something and me thinking, oh, this is no problem. I just don't eat that stuff. And I, I didn't, the, the, the hairs on my head didn't go up and say, this is dangerous. I remember that I ate that whole box of what it was that night and that I had this ability then and I don't have it now to have a little and then get back on the program and have a little and get back on the program. So my weight stayed low and um, that was about probably about 14 years ago and I don't even know if that was the first bite but um, it, it stands out in my memory. So eventually I was able to, um, I, I just stopped. I stopped coming to meetings. And what would happen was 
I'd have my coat on. I'd be at the door to our house. I'd have, I could take my coat out of the closet. I'd have it on. I'd say, I'm on my way to a meeting. And I'd open the door. And then I'd shut the door, hang my coat back up, and not go. And all these, I, what happened was I began not doing all the activities of recovery that I had done before. So eventually, um, and, and, and I, in a sense, I thought I was getting away with it because my weight didn't go up yet. Then one day, I was as into the food as I had ever been, and, and it, went very, it happened very fast. And that lasted for 12 years. Within that 12-year time, um, I probably had some periods of abstinence. I tried to come back to OA. I came back, and you know everyone says, keep coming back. The thing was that it, I couldn't. Come to a meeting, I would be greeted with so much love, warmth, and people were so happy to see me, but it was so hard. Not hard, it was just impossible. It was more than hard. I just didn't want, I just couldn't come back yet. Then I spent about five years trying to go to another 12 step program for food addiction, and um, it didn't take either, really. So, about um, three years ago, I was kind of at my wit's end. I was back in what they call the pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization of eating. My eating was as bad as it ever was. And if I did go to one of those other meetings, I would drive home, I would stop, I would buy the food. It, it was just as horrible and terror-ridden as it ever had been. And I get up, and I get up every morning, and I say, today I choose to be on the abstinent. And you know, the thing is about choice is that I had no choice. If I had had a choice, I wouldn't be a compulsive overeater and food addict. So I um, eventually was able to... Uh, to connect with something that really helped me. And I didn't come back to OA immediately, but I connected with some people who were talking about food addiction, and one in particular person who doesn't even live anywhere in California who I met happened to meet because someone knew her. She had over 30 years of abstinence, and um, I started talking to her quite a lot. And she helped me. And one of the first things she did was present me with a food plan. And the food plan totally eliminated sugar, flour, wheat, processed foods. It was weighed and measured. And, um, and I'd been hungry. I'd been trying to diet. And I'd been hungry. So it, it was enough to balance out me physiologically. And... Um, and then I had the opportunity to go spend some time with her, so I did. And this isn't that anybody has to run away to get abstinent, but it just, it, this has just happened to be my path. And when I was there, she worked with me a lot on what happened to me in relapse and, and told me a lot about how her experience with her 30 years of abstinence helped 
um, helped her and what she saw as some things in relapse. And it, oh, it was the same eye-opening experience that I had had way back when, um, when I first came to OA. All of a sudden, the light bulb went out, and I was hearing the truth about me. And I, uh, I found a sponsor. This woman could not sponsor me, but actually one of her sponsees ended up being my sponsor. And I got so much help. I got so much help. And I'm working a far more rigorous, vigorous program now. I had to throw myself back into this. And, of course, within a week or two of that, I came back to OA. And, um, and I started really doing the things that are suggested. And one of the, the major thing is what I've done with working through the steps. And I'm hearing myself talk now, and I have to say that I'm saying I, I, I did this. And I don't even think it was me getting abstinent again, getting recovery again. I think that a power greater than myself just entered my life and blew a strong wind on my back that led me down the path that that helped me be willing to do the work. And this is work. And um, I have been told that recovery and abstinence takes a lot of work and that relapse will take me no work. And so I took that and I ran with it also. Lots of little things I ran with, but I heard things that I'd never heard before. Or maybe I did hear them, but I didn't hear them hear them. And um, so this is kind of what I do. It's not kind of. It's what I do now. And I do have a food plan, and it's what I described before. I credit the food plan that I happen to have with my physical recovery because I have absolutely no cravings. Nothing triggers me. I can go anywhere. Smells don't usually even bother me, although I don't think I'd walk into a, a bakery and start sniffing things. <laughs> but, um, but I have a lot of freedom there. But there was something I didn't know about, and I found it out when I first started working the steps. I always credited so much to the physical, and I rarely even thought very much about the mental obsession. And when I began again working step one in the way that my sponsor led me through the steps this time, it was the most thorough first step that I have ever, ever done. And I, it was pointed out to me that the, everything can be totally quiet. I can be here today and have no cravings, no obsession, and my body can be totally clean. And I can walk out on that street and all of a sudden that strange mental blank spot could happen to me and I could be wanting to eat something. And when such a thing happens, the only defense I have is a power greater than myself. And that really was another thing that I was able to grasp onto. And then I was told to study the big book, study the steps, 
study the steps with the desperation of a drowning person. And believe me, I was drowning in the food. And it, um, I, so that's what I've done. And it required changes. I had, I, uh, someone told me that, and I believe this firmly also, if nothing changes, then nothing changes. So when I started, I had to make real big changes in my life. What was I doing? Well, things had been really good with my work, and I'd been wanting to get as much work done as possible and, and be a shining star. And so I had to let go of some of my work. That's a really scary thing. Then I had to have faith that even if I did that, if I let go of my work, I would be taken care of. And I didn't quit at my job, but I turn things around a lot slower for my clients now. They're not complaining. They don't care. It was me who, um, who set those standards for myself that I had to be Miss Shining Star and that they all had to think I was really wonderful. So I had to, I had to sleep. I had to do those very basic things. And in the two years now that uh, I've been abstinent again, I've managed to again let go of 50 pounds. And, um, and so I'm feeling physically better between actually sleeping now and weight loss, which is important. That, that's really helped. What I really feel better about now is my spiritual life and my emotional life. And what I've done to do that is, um, is, is work through the steps. And I've made almost all my ninth step amends now. I have um, one letter to deliver to a dead person's grave when I'm near there. And what they talk about with the promises that, um, that situations which used to baffle us, We'll, we'll know what to do about that cut and other things that they talk about have come true. But the thing about the promises also that I found out is you don't have to wait till the ninth step. Those are the ninth step promises. The biggest promise is on the title page of the big book, how many thousands of men and women have recovered from, and I changed the word, to compulsive overeating and food addiction. So working those steps has been just one of the most important things I've done. And then the other thing I do is I worked hard with my sponsor through a set of questions to find out what my relapse warning signs are. And I have a few. Uh, when I'm saying I don't want to bother, I don't feel like it, when I, deprior when I make recovery a lower priority over work, when I sleep too little, when I believe what the disease whispers in my ear about how maybe I could just uh, have a little this or change my work, or change my eating schedule, or um, when I don't deal with my emotions, because remember, I didn't think this was about emotions, and now I, in order to find out what emotions are, I've had to look on a list. And, oh, I just kind of know inside when something's troubling me. And so I've had to just look on that list and, and say, what is this? And do 10 steps. And 
what my life looks like now is that I plan the night before what I'm going to eat the next day. I commit it to paper, and I do my evening inventory where I go through, and I and it has other things on it. It has things I found out about from my uh, fourth step. I pray, and I go to sleep. And in the morning when I get up, I have a routine also. I... Um, I have some prayers. I meditate for 15 or 20 minutes, and I write a gratitude list. Um, I communicate with my sponsor and people I sponsor. You know, it takes me about a half an hour in the morning to do all that, and it's so worth it. And um, I think my time is almost up. Okay. So... It's just been, I am so grateful to be back in OA, and I see so much recovery here at this meeting, at this convention, and at the meetings I go to in San Francisco. I see tremendous recovery, and that is so hopeful, and um, so thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thank you, Marcia. Our second speaker today is Joan. Please join me in welcoming Joan. I'll be glad to. I was going to mention that first thing that I don't know about anybody else, but I'm horribly distractible, and I'm going to do this on faith that I can stay focused here instead of getting pulled over to the noise over there. My name is Joan. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'm having one of those act-as-if days where I'm going to act as if I am capable of speaking in front of you and sharing my experience, strength, and hope in an appropriate manner. Um, I also want to... um, I also want to focus mostly on my experience of relapse and recovery. So I've been around these rooms for a long time. I'm coming up on 26 years in Overeaters Anonymous, and that's a lot of experience, strength, and hope to share. So I'm going to try and focus, like I said, on um, the relapse on. Um, I came into this program in uh, 1980. Uh, These are the statistics. My top weight is somewhere close to 300 pounds. I don't know exactly where. I also have a bottom weight uh, that's about 70 pounds less than I am right now. So I have been at both extremes of this disease. I have been morbidly obese, and I have been extremely uh, anorexic. I have suffered the physical ramifications of both ends of this disease. And um, so that's kind of where I come from. Um, I did what a lot of 100-pounders do when they come into this program is I... um, I grabbed it all really quick, uh, especially the food plan, and I was determined to, I mean, OA was such a revolutionary concept to me that I was willing to do anything to belong here. I didn't know that there was this language to be spoken and this kind of fellowship to be had. Can you hear me okay? Um, So literally, I was willing to do anything in order to have a place here and to feel for the first time in my life like I actually belonged somewhere, that I wasn't like a discard that needed to like get off the planet and make room for the real people. So um, 
even though I got it at my first meeting that this was a spiritual program, and I really needed to hear that because I had been through um, diet and fasting hell, and I knew that that wasn't, the, I actually did know that that was the solution when I came here. I was that desperate. But somewhere along the line, I was so desperate to earn my seat in the room. I didn't know that you didn't have to earn it, that we earned it before we got here. And once you're here, it's yours. Um, that I, I really, slowly but surely, over the first couple of years I was in program, I lost a lot of weight real quick because there was only one acceptable food plan when I came in in 1980. And if you were a 100-pounder and you went on that food plan, you lost a lot of weight really quick. And then um, you were stuck with life. And, and I couldn't do life, which is why I got into this predicament in the first place. I mean, I only had one tool to take care of myself. Well, actually, I had three, and the other two were drugs and alcohol. So, uh, and I gave those up when I gave up the food because it kind of, in my head, kind of went together. And um, so I had no tools with which to live. So I wound up in a psych hospital here, and I eventually wound up after losing I don't know, the numbers get a little foggy now. Something like 110 pounds in the first 11 months that I was here. Um, I was left with trying to work a program and trying to get some tools and not understanding um, that I didn't have to prove to you that I deserved to be here because, you know, we pay a lot of attention to 100-pounders when they lose a lot of weight real quick. And it's really hard not to get, when you have no self-esteem, it's really hard not to get that confused with sense of with self-esteem and a sense of self-worth, which I did. I fell right into that hole that so many hundred-pounders fall into. And when I found out on the other side that I had nothing and I didn't know how to be out in the world and I didn't know how to be the Barbie doll that I always wanted to be, that I finally got to be when I was here first. I was very young when I got here. I was in my 20s. So I could still bounce from being a very obese woman to a Barbie doll. I mean, the skin, the skin tucked in and everything went very nicely. <laughs> I didn't have any ability to be in the world. It was a very frightening place. Um, I see my relapse now out of the deepest sense of compassion for myself. You know, I have a list here that I made so that I could get as much information into this share as possible about what I learned um, from my relapse. And what I learned from my relapse was compassion. And it was a lesson I badly needed because like most hundred pounders, like most compulsive overeaters, I was an all or nothing, black or white, good or bad person, and I had no compassion for myself. My compulsive overeating sprung from a deep well of um, not belonging, not being good enough, and really hating myself, really at really deepest core, hating myself and believing that I didn't deserve to be alive, that I was a flawed human being and that my compulsive overeating was a symptom of my flawed humanness. So, um, so of course, when I didn't have that symptom anymore, I had nothing to turn to, and um, I had nothing to look at in the mirror and pin all my self-hatred on. So I imploded. And like I said, I wound up in a psych hospital. I wound up putting on all the weight again. What I didn't do was leave because I really did have a sense. I had worked very hard when I got here. Like I said, I didn't have the illusion that the weight was my problem. But because eventually my food plan became my higher power because I had nothing else to turn my will and my life over to, I had no other sense of anything other than that food plan. That food plan was my entree into all the attention and love that I finally got in this program. And one day when I couldn't do the food plan perfectly anymore because I knew two speeds on and off, perfect or go to hell, and, and that's typical of 
It's typical of compulsive overeaters. It's even more typical of people who get to the morbidly obese category um, because it takes that much, um, that it takes that ability to shut off and shut down in order to get up to 300 pounds. So um, with the greatest of compassion, I, which I didn't have at the time, but I certainly have now, um, I woke up in the middle of the night after having gone and seen my father for the first time in nine years to make amends for all the things that he did to us in our family. But I thought I was supposed to make amends to everybody in my life. If I had any feelings whatsoever, I thought it was my fault. So I went and made amends to him and then came back and woke up in the middle of the night and ate a carrot. And my sponsor, who I had so non-lovingly chosen for her black and white, all or nothing ability, told me that I had to go to meetings and introduce myself again as a newcomer and um, drop all my service positions, stop working the steps. Because in those days we had, and I don't know if it still exists, I hope not, we had this very odd notion that if you were eating, you were not allowed to do anything. I mean, you were basically allowed to come and listen, and that was it. That you weren't supposed to do anything else because we picked up this, the concept from AA that if you were in the food, then you were drunk and you didn't, you somehow couldn't participate. So the little bit of support that I did have in the program disappeared. I had to drop everything. My sponsor fired me. Um, basically, the only people I could stay connected to were a bunch of other people who came in at the same time as I did and at about three years into the program started having problems with food also. There um, was no support at that time for relapse. The fact that this workshop even exists is testimony to the fact that a whole bunch of people who seemed to be going through the same thing across the country at the same time all got together and demanded that OA make a place for us. So the reason that I'm here today is because somewhere, somebody on the East Coast got this brilliant idea for something called 12-Step Within, which is about carrying the message to those who suffer within the program. The people who aren't struggling with food, Welcome the newcomers. I welcome the newcomers in theory, but my the people that I speak to are the people who are here, who have been here, who are working their butts off and still can't stop eating compulsively because that was my story. I was doing everything you were supposed to be doing. We eventually created a secret relapse meeting because we weren't allowed to say the word out loud at the time. People who relapsed went away. I couldn't afford to go away. I knew death waited for me out there. I knew it. I had no resources. This was the first place I was ever able to take a deep breath in my entire life. Um, we started uh, our version of 12 Step Within that started across the country. Um, we got these kinds of workshops at Region 2. We got special meetings. We've got retreats. If you want to know more about that, I'm glad to talk to you about it at any point. That's the reason why I got to stay here because 12 Step Within allowed me I didn't know I had shame. I didn't know that that's what the name was. I thought that self-hatred and hatred of fat people and people who were out of control with food was like normal and healthy. I didn't know it was shame and I didn't know that it was going to kill me, that that's what was going to kill me way before the food ever did. So um, because the food and the shame and the twist, I mean, that's what led to the psych hospital. That's what led to multiple suicide attempts. That's what uh, led to an inability to leave my apartment, complete isolation. Um, that's what led to all of that part of my life, which I 
look back with at now and can hardly believe that that was my life, except it lives inside of me. Um, the 12-step within kept me here. I stayed in active relapse for somewhere between three and four years. And what that means is no matter what I did, I could not control my food. I, there was no control left. I tried over and over and over again to get back on the food plan that I was here. I thought it was a food plan. I thought I had gone, grown past diets. It turns out that for me, anything that I try and do now that I used to do then that I can't do now anymore is a diet. I can dress it up in anything, any way I want to call it, but it's still a diet for me and it's poison. So took me four years to get out of relapse. Um, I didn't get out by getting back on a food plan. For me, and this is my story only, I had to give up the concept of food plans entirely because I wasn't going to be able to find any peace until I find, found a different way to approach this. I had a blessed sponsor who um, had uh, lived in Europe and had to get abstinent without any kind of diet food. She had to get abstinent on real food, which was like an amazing concept to me because my original, quote, abstinence had been based on all the diet soda I could drink. And, you know, my sponsor told me that was okay. Um, but I was feeding the compulsion. You know, I always fed the compulsion. The compulsion never left until I gave up the idea of, of controlling my food. Um, what I learned in my relapse and what I have learned in the years since, slowly, I hit my top weight um, in a way. I thought I had come in the biggest person on the planet. I got much bigger once I'd lost all that weight and then put it back on here. In the middle of the program, going to meetings, meeting with friends, working the steps in our secret relapse meeting, because that was the, we were the only people who would sponsor each other, was all of us in relapse. And you know, that was an absolutely brilliant thing because I could think all the bad things about myself in the world, but I could look across the room at these other women, because we were all women at the time. Welcome to the men, but we were all women at the time. Um, I could look across the room and see that these people weren't terrible people. They didn't deserve to be suffering. Maybe there was something wrong about the way we were approaching the material in the 12 steps. And what we did as a group is we tried really hard to look past all of the diet mentality that we had managed to bring into the program with us to what was really in the steps. And the steps were about a spiritual and an emotional recovery. And my sponsor who told me that if I did the spiritual and the emotional work that the food would follow, that I should trust that the food would follow because it followed for her. She didn't have the diet stuff to fall back on. She had to do it with real food. So she had to work an emotional and a spiritual program. So here's what I learned from relapse in my last few minutes. I already mentioned that what I learned was compassion for self and others because I had to. It was really clear that this was the last house on the block. And if I didn't find some way to make the 12 steps work for me, that there were no other options. There was no magic in food. There was no food plan. You couldn't tie me down. You couldn't staple me up and get me to recover from this disease. Either it was going to be God or it was going to be nothing. Um, I learned what it meant to be human. Thank you. And what it means to be human for me is that I'm always going to make mistakes. There is never going to be a day where I can say I'm going to do this with my life and then proceed merrily along to do it. There are interruptions. There is life. There are other people on the planet. There is uh, the perfect food that you were going to eat for lunch that's spoiled. Life just happens. And I want to be a part of life. I spent my first 28 years sitting on the sidelines, watching everybody else live their life, telling myself it was because I was too fat and that's why I didn't get to participate. And that was a big lie. 
Um, I found out from my relapse that you can't build recovery on fear, shame, and self-hate. I tried to do it my first few years. I tried to hate myself into abstinence. I tried to shame myself into abstinence. I tried to get you to shame me into abstinence. didn't work. The only thing that works for me as a basis for recovery, I can't use the word abstinence. It got poisoned for me really early on. Abstinence had a very narrow definition, and I have to look at sanity with food and recovery in my life. The only thing that works for me as a basis for that is love, compassion, patience, acceptance, service, truth, letting go, all the values that we're taught here. Um, I also learned that hunger is the way my deepest, most wounded self speaks to me, and I need to have respect for my hunger. I have to stop trying to deny it or stamp it out or hate myself for it, that hunger is the way I speak to myself because Early on in my childhood, I got all the other ways stamped out. I wasn't allowed to have feelings. I wasn't allowed to have needs. The only hunger I was ever allowed to have was for food. And I needed to learn to start respecting that because it played a major role in my life. Below my hunger, if I'm willing to get there, is longing, passion, grief, anger. It's all my aliveness. And what I have to do is be willing to work with the hunger and use it as a signal that there's something going on that wants to be heard in me. I learned from my relapse that I need to learn from my own experience, that I actually do have body wisdom, but I spent so many years not listening to it that the the voice is so thin and reedy, any noise whatsoever drowns it out. So I learned that I really really can trust myself, and I know it goes against the common ethos in, in OA, but I do have something inside of me that knows what's right for me. It's just that it's agonizing to get there. I learned for myself that anything that smacks of perfectionism is really lethal for me. I learned that what you think of me is none of my business, and it really isn't. Um, I learned that I cannot afford to ignore the pain of my past. The first thing I heard at my first OA meeting, the most important thing that I try and pass on, is that um, it's a threefold illness, that the symptom is physical, the cause is emotional, and the solution is spiritual. I have got to work with that emotional cause. I cannot do a direct frontal attack on the physical symptom. It only gets me deeper into the disease. The only thing I need and I, I need to must work on is the emotional pain that I drag with me from my childhood and from my culture and from my past. Here's what I learned what doesn't work for me in OA. Having a goal weight does not work for me. So the weight I weigh now is God's joke. It's halfway between my top weight and my bottom weight. I daily, almost daily still, grieve the loss of the fact that I am ever going to look like a Cosmo girl. It's just not going to happen. I look like my ability to tolerate living in the world. Thank you. Um, What... I'm thinking the fine person. What also doesn't work is any kind of shaming behavior, any kind of hiding, any kind of pretending, any kind of um, refusal to acknowledge the truth. Self-criticism does not work. I have to turn those messages around immediately. All or nothing thinking does not work, and looking outside myself for approval doesn't work. Also, good and bad food does not work for me. My food plan is very general. In fact, the only requirement I have of myself is that I've been a vegetarian for many, many years. That's important to me for a lot of spiritual reasons. 
but I, I had to get food out of good and bad categories because for me, I punish myself. And if I have bad foods, those are the ones I'm going to go to first. What does work for me is love, compassion, acceptance, service to others. I've done a lot of service at region and world service. It really taught me about who I was and what my uh, positive qualities were. The other last things were our truth, letting go, therapy, meditation, prayer, exercise, and being present in the moment. And thank you for uh, allowing me to be present in the moment. Thank you, Joan. Our third and final speaker is Annette, and I am going to pass the after basket one more time, and our panel will um, ask, answer your questions after her share. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Annette. I'm a compulsive overeater. I want to thank Marcia and Joan for sharing before me. It's going to be a hard following, but I'm going to work on it here. Um, this month is my 21st year as a member of Overeaters Anonymous, and for today I have been abstaining for 51 days and 10 years. And this is the first time in 21 years that I have reached double digits. I am so excited. And, you know, the one thing today is I do not take my recovery, my abstinence for granted, not one iota. I guard it with my life every single day. Our speaker said last night this was a matter of life and death for him. It is a matter of life and death for me. If I eat compulsively, I will die. I'm a century person. I'm, I was over 250 pounds, and I've also been about 30 pounds less than I am now. So I have sort of hit both gamuts, uh, and I've done all of that while a member of Overeaters Anonymous. When I first came to OA, I was just a, well, I had lots of tools, tons of tools when I got here. I was a coke addict. I was an alcoholic. I bit my nails to the quick. I carried a 38. I was not happy. <laughs> and most of you knew it. You know, I did not want to be happy. In fact, I had... Um, they called it an attitude. <laughs> and, you know, the only thing I can say is I came here, and there were people here, and it was mostly the women, who loved me until I could love myself. You know, but I didn't know that I didn't love myself. I thought I did. I drove a nice car. I owned my own home. I uh, made a lot of money. And I was, you know, when I got here, it seemed like I had... It seemed like everything was okay except for that I had this extra 120 pounds or so that I was walking around with. You know, and when I look now, I have a little dog, and I buy him a 40-pound bag of dog food. I can barely carry that damn thing into the house, and I have no idea how I carried two and a half of those around, you know, for most of my life. Um, <clears throat> next month, I'll be 53. I've been here. I was in my 30s when I got here. And I had never known anything but fat. Now, some of you might think that a, a drug addict, especially a coke addict, would have been thin. And most of my other druggy friends, you know, would even ask me because we had no, you know, 
no social skills. And they would ask me, how could you be a fat coke addict? And I said, listen here, let me tell you what. I can eat faster than any of you. <laughs> and I can clean the state of New York with a toothbrush while I'm eating. And that, you know, that's the way it was. Nothing stopped me from eating, ever. Nothing stopped me. I, um, it just, when I got here, I actually, I didn't even come here to lose weight. Because I didn't, and I didn't come here to get spiritual either, trust me. You know, I didn't come here for emotional therapy. I didn't come here for spiritual therapy. And I didn't come here to lose weight. I just came here because I didn't have any place else to go. You know, and that, and it was free. And my mother had already spent all the money she, you know, that I thought could be spent on trying to get me thin. Because I was about six when I uh, flared into obesity. And I stayed there forever. And when I did lose weight, you know, when I did try to diet, I mean, I'd go like from, I'm five foot two, and I would go from 252 to 232. And trust me, there's not much difference. You know, when you're two fit, when you're five foot two and 232, and I thought I had a round face and big bones. You know, it's like, I, that's who I thought I was. And if I would have put a limit on what I was going to get when I got here, it would have been um, just wearing a size 16. You know, I would have still been smoking. Did I say I smoked too? I was a four pack a day when I got here. I had lots of tools, tons of tools to deal with life. And let me tell you, it wasn't until I started giving up those tools and turning to new tools that really the, you know, dealing with life became hard. It became really hard because it used to be easy. I didn't have to feel. You know, I didn't have to feel my feelings. And I could acknowledge that I had feelings, but I didn't have to feel them. You know, that was for wusses. That wasn't for tough people like me. I, I'm tough. And I like it now because, you know, every once in a while I break down and cry these days. And most people don't know me that way, and it's great to do it just for the shock value, you know, of what uh, people do. And uh, I'm going to give you an idea of some of the things that I learned after I tell you what happened. I got here. I didn't expect to lose weight. I got abstinent right away for some reason. I don't know why. I think I, I thought Overeaters Anonymous needed me because nobody was, you know, counting the literature. I'm an accountant, and I thought you were supposed to keep track of everything, and nobody here was keeping track of anything. And so I figured, you know, they really need me. And you know what? They never asked me to keep track of anything here. I can never figure that out. It's like I'm an accountant by trade. They never asked me to be treasurer for anything. In the last 10 years, they have not asked me to do any of that stuff. And it's probably really better, you know, because... I'm, I'm like too anal, too anal with it. And But I learned here how to let go, you know, let go of some of my old ideas. And for me, relapse was, I got here, I got, I was lucky, I got abstinent right away because I took on a literature job so that I could keep track of something. And uh, other than me, you know, I wasn't used to keeping track of me. Um, there were a lot of people here. I got to do a lot of inventories before I got to my own. 
<laughs> so if you haven't done your inventory, check with me. I might have it. <laughs> but I like to, you know, practice things before I really... So I think that's how come I had to practice, uh, you know, relapse so that I could know what abstinence was when I got it. Um, you know, I wanted, I had that great obsession they talk about in the big book in, in the chapter three, more about compulsive overeating, I call the chapter. It says it is the great obsession of every compulsive overeater that she could one day control and enjoy her eating like a normal person. That's what I wanted to do. I just I remember looking in my journal. I could look back in my old journals, and it says, I just want to be normal. Well, what the hell is that to a compulsive overeater? You know, I might be able to be normal about something, although I don't think anything applies to me, but there's possible possibility that I could be normal about something, but it's not eating. And, you know, I really, I, what, what I thought is once I lost the weight, there was no way I was ever going to gain it back. See, because I was different than everybody else here. When I got here, I had never lost any weight. In fact, 20 pounds, you know, that didn't count from 252 to 232. But I had never lost the weight. So um, I didn't, I thought if I ever did, then that would make me, render me normal. And I did lose the weight. And then I also thought I'd be able to breathe after I lost the weight. And I was still smoking four packs a day, and I still couldn't breathe. And when I stopped smoking, I thought, well, I can eat a little bit. You know, I can just, and then, you know, I used licorice sticks as cigarettes. I cut them down to, and pretty soon I was doing four packs of licorice a day. And, and you know, I'm not talking the amateur packs, you know, the little, I'm talking the packs, because I did things in, quantity. So um, what I found out that time is, oh, you know, I went into a relapse. But my ego, because I had lost over 100 pounds and I was such a star, uh, my ego didn't want me to get fat. So I tried out that throwing up thing, which I had never even heard of until I got here. And I threw up for, I don't know how many months, maybe 18 months or so. And somebody caught me in OA, and she said, you know what, Annette, I'm never going to tell anybody, but if you don't, you're going to die. And so I got to get in front of, uh, I was leading a retreat, mind you, and I got in front of the 150 women that were there, it was a women's retreat, and I told them all that my head was in the toilet. And you know, and they came, and they put their arms around me, and they loved me anyway. And... It was amazing. I got to get abstinent again after that. And about, I got, you know, I was kind of like on this floating abstinence after doing the bulimia thing. And I actually went as far as anorexia. I got to be about 99 pounds. And my sponsor told me I was too skinny, and I told her I fired her. Because there was no such thing as too skinny. Uh, but I kind of did, you know, I was kind of on this, uh, I didn't have to really follow a food plan. It was easy because I knew if I overate, I would throw up, and so I wouldn't overeat. And, and, and I had this whole little, but I didn't eat sugar, although I didn't say sugar wasn't off the limits, and I, but I just, you know, I just didn't. And then my 40th birthday came around, and my partner at the time, who was not a compulsive overeater, had a birthday party for me. 
and she had this huge sheet cake. And I had been abstaining for about five years at that point, maintaining this 100-pound weight loss, and I thought, once again, I had the idea that I've been abstaining for five years. I'm fine. I can have a piece of cake. I once again thought I was rendered normal. But you know what? I wasn't. I had that piece of cake. And it wasn't not in my food plan. You know, my food plan said that I could have a piece of cake if I had it within a meal. So I had it with a meal, lunch. And then, of course, when dinner came, I had to have it again. And then breakfast, there was actually cake left over because everybody there wasn't a compulsive overeater. And I had to have it with breakfast. And pretty soon, you know, I had to go buy another sheet cake so that I could have it with every meal. And the pieces got, you know, from regular to half a sheet cake. And that's just the way this disease works with me. That's the way relapse works. Relapse works with a little thought, a little idea. Relapse for me works with having an idea. I had to run out of ideas. You know, when I'm out of ideas, I'm okay. And that's the only time I'm okay. And, you know, I couldn't, my ego was so big, it didn't even matter that I was gaining weight. I just didn't get on the scale. You know, so, and I could get mad at my partner because she did the laundry and she was the one who was shrinking my clothes. <laughs> so it was, talk about a denial. And pretty soon they stopped asking me to speak at meetings and they stopped asking me to share. People weren't asking me to sponsor them anymore. And it wasn't until I had the courage one day to get on the scale and I saw that I was 201 pounds. And I told myself that if I ever made, got 200 pounds again, that would equal relapse. And so I finally was able to say, after two and a half years of being in relapse, that I was in relapse. And I could not get abstinent. I could not get abstinent. I'm sorry, it was, I don't know how long I was in relapse before I qualified, but it was two and a half years after I said I was in relapse before I could get one day of abstinence. The only thing I have done right in 21 years that I've been in Overeaters Anonymous is I have kept coming back. It's the only thing that I've done right. Finally, when I got, did get, it was Mother's Day in 1996 that I became abstinent this last time. I didn't want to do a food plan. I didn't want to give up sugar. I didn't want to have, you know, I wanted to do it my way. I wanted to be normal. And it was the Thanksgiving before Mother's Day, and my partner and I went to a Thanksgiving dinner with some friends, and they put on this big spread, you know, the table. But there were about 20 people there. I looked at the table, and I was looking around, and there was lots of stuff there, but I was looking around. I looked at how many people were there, and my, uh, I, I, I looked at my partner, and I just looked around, and I thought, I hope there's enough food. My partner looked at me, and she was looking at the same table I was looking at, at the same spread. She's not a compulsive overeater, and she looked at me, and she said, who's going to eat all this food? <laughs> Bingo! I said, that's the difference between me and her. You know, there was a huge, there was a huge gap. Huge. I am the compulsive overeater. She's not a compulsive overeater. My time's not up, is it? 
Oh, good. Okay. Um, do me a favor. Go like that when it's because I'm really pretty self-obsessed, and you know I won't be looking at you. Anyway, <laughs> unless you need your inventory taken. <laughs> If anybody sees her holding it up and I don't see it, go like that, okay? <laughs> anyway, I knew, I knew in that moment what the difference was between me and her. But I still couldn't get abstinent. I couldn't. But when, when the day finally came that grace overcame me for one day, and I was able to get one day, I knew there were certain foods I couldn't eat. And those were, they're easy to identify because they talk. <laughs> they have a bigger mouth than I do. Cheesecake talks. Cheesecake yells from the freezer. Annette, here I am. <laughs> Come and get me. Brussels sprouts. They don't talk. <laughs> They could sit in the freezer for a month, not say a word. <laughs> Fried chicken talks. Now some foods whisper. Those are kind of okay. You know, broiled chicken whispers. I could eat a whole chicken, but you know, after a couple of pieces, I'm okay. It's not like they're going, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. You know, like cheesecake. Or like cookies, bread, especially bread in the restaurant, it screams from the basket. You know, get me, get me, get me. And so I don't eat those foods, not at all. It's easier for me not to eat them than to try to eat a little bit of them. You know, and for me, that's freedom. Because that's what I'm here for. I want to be free. I do not want to struggle with staying abstinent. And if I'm trying to eat a little bit of something that has a big mouth, <laughs> then I'm struggling. And so today I choose to abstain from those foods that talk to me. You know, and I choose to. And like our speaker said last night, is that deprivation? Hell no. It is not deprivation, you know. And today I do guard my abstinence with my life. I guard it. People will say to me, you know, sometimes I'll go to a dinner party or whatever. I don't not go places, and I don't ask people to do things special for me because, you know, they won't invite me. But I go places, and I usually have a backup meal in my trunk just in case it's not there's not the right food for me. Got it. Two minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, just in case. 99% of the time I can find something within the realm of wherever I am to eat. The only thing I might be minus is a few vegetables. You know, and that's, that, that's, that I usually will definitely carry with me, a little extra. But I want to be free. You know, I want to be happy, joyous, and free. I think it's page 59 in the big book. It says, God's will for me is to be happy, joyous, and free. 
and I've had, uh, added prosperous, peaceful, and happy. And if I'm trying to eat a little bit of something that I want a lot of, I am not going to be free. And so <clears throat> if I can give anybody a message, I hope it would be the message of that freedom, there is no food worth taking my freedom from me. You know, we are, we are based, this whole country is based on freedom. You know, and if I'm enslaved to the food, then I am not free. And today, after 10 years of not having those foods, I've had 51 days of freedom. No, just kidding. 10 years and 51 days. I think it took about two years before I was actually free from the obsession. Or not from the obsession. I was free from the obsession immediately. But free from that, I want it. You know, and it took about 10 years for me to be free from wanting a cigarette. You know, so that two years was nothing. That was nothing. And today, I am free. I don't even want it. So if you're here, if you're struggling, if you're in relapse, just keep coming back. Please, I need you here for my recovery. Thank you very much. Thank you, Annette. We will now draw questions from the Ask a Basket. I have some up here, and I don't know where the basket is, but if somebody wants to bring that up front, we probably won't have time to get through all of them, but we'll do as many as we can. This is a question specifically addressed to me. Do you still follow the same food plan you mentioned? Yes. It has given me tremendous um, physical peace. And I don't know why I would ever choose, well, make a decision to do any other way. I just hope I follow it forever. I pray that I follow it forever. got a great question. How do you find the faith in yourself to try again after screwing up again and again? Well, first of all, at this point in my recovery, I now expect to screw up again and again, which is really, really helpful. Um, but um, what I rely on is I have a wonderful group of friends in the program, some of whom I have known the entire 26 years I've been here. And when I can't find the faith in myself, I call them and they carry my faith for me. And that's what we do for each other. And I think that's what all of us do for each other in OA. If we're willing to go past our limited minds and allow that in, allow each other's faith in us in. Thank you. asking, please tell us where God, HP, was when, uh, when you were in relapse. What came first when you became abstinent? Connection to God or abstinence? Uh, well, I don't think God goes anywhere, whether I'm in relapse or whatever. God just is. You know, and, and what I have to remember is, you know, what came first when I became abstinent? Connection to God or abstinence? In the beginning, it was abstinence. You know, I've got to say that I st- had to stay can be committed to be abstinent no matter what. Because God is not going anywhere. You know, they're, they're in, and the only way God can help me 
is if I have a commitment to something first. Has your relapse taught you something that helps you with abstinence today? Oh, relapse was awful. It was horrible. It was painful. So when I look back, I don't want to go there again. I, I intend not to go there again. And my intention is, again, powered by that power greater than myself. And I do know that I have to remember my relapse because of the pain. And, um, and they say, keep it fresh. And I have to keep it fresh in my mind. So that helps me with my abstinence today. It's motivation. And, um, and you know, even in spite of all the motivation I may have in the world, I know that... Um, all I have to do is not do certain things that I do now. And I mean that in a gentle way. That, so, yes, I guess it has taught me something. It taught me that I don't want to go there. This is a long question. You talked about criticism and shame not working for you. Can you talk a bit about step four and the other steps focusing on defects? How do you look directly at your defects while avoiding shame and having compassion? Well, first of all, I've been doing this for a really long time, so the first part of the answer to that is practice. Um, but the second part is I don't, I don't entertain that part of my program on my own. I do not work that or for many years while I was getting used to this, I did not go into any of the step work that involved looking at my defects on my own. In fact, I had a friend in the program that promised me that being in OA meant that I never had to do anything that was hard and scary alone again. And that for me is the basis of my spiritual program, that I don't do things alone. I do not, I am such a self-critical person that it does not benefit me to look at, at defects if I can't do it with some loving guidance to keep me out of the shame and the self-hate. So I did it with the help of a therapist because I'm also not a very good judge of my defects. If I had had all the defects removed that I wanted removed those first 10 or 15 years that I was in program, I would have done away with 90% of my personality. <laughs> so you can't always tell what's a defect. I was trained to believe that the most Precious parts of myself were unacceptable because they were unacceptable to the people who raised me. So don't do this work alone. That's how I um, deal with the shame and the self-criticism around it. I got kind of a long one, too, and a two-parter. It says, why do you think it is that so many of us have been in OA for a long time without achieving and maintaining a normal weight, yet we rarely talk about relapse in meetings. <clears throat> now I'm just going to give you my opinion. My opinion is, is that we rarely talk about food plans and how important that is. And I think that's why we have a hard time achieving and maintaining our weight because, you know, every, it's like this esoterical thing. Well, you know, my abstinence is, and it's all, you know, I eat whatever I want whenever I want. Well, if I did that, I would be 252, 350, whatever pounds. That's what I would be. 
And it says maybe the focus on positive pitches or the fear of making OA look bad to newcomers. Question. It just seems like the, there's organizational denial going on. If the steps work, you know, whatever, and eat moderately and exercise. Well, you know, the steps do work. But to me, when I'm really working at the steps, I'm really looking at me and my behavior. And part of that is how I eat, looking at that I'm not following the food plan. I want to ad-lib my food, and that doesn't work when I'm a compulsive overeater. How do you feel about people commenting on your obvious relapse and, in parentheses, weight gain? What would you like to hear as a comment? Well, there was my family and close friends. Um, didn't make me feel good. I didn't want to be noticed that I gained weight. And I did everything I could to hide it, you know, the shopping for the clothes, the wearing the makeup, the getting the hairstyles. Um, of course, I didn't feel good. What would I have liked to have heard as a comment? I would have liked them to say nothing. As a matter of fact, you know, the little subtitle of this workshop, Stop in the Name of Love. Well, it was really nice that people loved me enough to tell me to stop, but there, but I really didn't want to hear stop. Not when I was eating. It interrupted my eating. So, probably I would have liked to most have heard nothing as a comment, but people did say things and um, politely, and it's still... How did it make me feel? Not very good. Please talk about the very subtle, quote, thinking, thinking that is a precursor to relapse. Precursor to relapse. Concrete examples, please. So what I have to say about that is the phrase thinking, thinking, for me, is another example of, um, for me, that is very shaming language and very shameful language. I much prefer to think of it as my pain and my woundedness, which I also believe that I'm entitled to. You know, there's statistics out there that say that something like 85% of people with our disease have been sexually molested. There, are, there is lots of pain in these rooms. We are people that, whether it's conscious or not, carry a lot of trauma and pain, and I don't believe that it serves any of us, but I definitely know it doesn't serve me to think of that in terms of think, thinking, thinking. I believe that I deal with my pain the best way I can, that I cannot come into a program like OA and rip the scab off of all those wounds all at once, and if I need to backtrack for a while in order to get the emotional support and reserves together in order to deal with the next level of pain and trauma that I need to deal with, that that deserves respect, not a phrase like thinking, thinking, which I believe we borrowed from AA, and bless them if it works for them, but my observation is it doesn't work for a lot of us. It just forces us deeper into our shame and our um, unwillingness to stay in recovery. Thanks.
This one says, how can or do you find willingness to surrender? I don't know who this came from, but I know if you're in this room, you've already got it. You know, what I can tell you is to keep coming back. Um, I think that if we're here, if we show up, we are willing to surrender. You know, that is, this, this, this is, this is the step. You know, just being here. So keep coming back is my answer. We will now have three-minute shares. Please limit your shares to three minutes, and please stick to the topic. And please, when you come up, make sure that you've signed the tape release form. Okay? Hello, I'm Big Jim Overeater. I've lost a little weight this this year, and I've kept it off the last uh, three years. I'd lose 60, gain it back, lose 60, and gain it back. But this year, I had some good luck. A higher power told me one day that I was looking for excuse, but people died and upset me. And so... I have an overweight thing, and it comes down from the from the top. And one thing happened to me in my recovery was I had a, uh, a young lady that was sponsoring me up to the third step, and it was about four years, and I um, I really wasn't going nowhere. So one day she said, um, "I'm going to drop you. You got to get out of the nest." Because you're never going to make it if I keep begging you. You're going to have to do it on your own now. You know enough now that you can, you need to put service back into the program. And so she's very smart. She stayed about 20 feet away from me because that was sort of a rejection, you know. And so I thought about it and it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me start growing and listening. And so I began to do um, um, a literature. And I began to do this and speaker getter and all this kind of stuff. Speaker getter, I learned me the best thing in the world. I was raised up uh, working in the sawmill, a tough bunch of boys. You know, you can't treat women like that. Ooh, they get right in the face. I learned real quick to, uh, I had to change my attitude. And so, when I gained my 60 pounds every year, my club did not treat me bad. They just kept on hugging me. Didn't say a word to me. And finally, I began to see the light. And... If I gained, I'd say, well, I gained. I gained 60 pounds. And one day I said, you know, I think I'm gaining weight again because, you know, my shorts are starting to crawl up my leg. Got to keep pulling them down. I think I've looped up again. Of course, everybody laughed, and some of them said, well, that's more information I need to know. <laughs> but it was just the honest truth, you know. I always try to be honest, and the most things that I've learned is I would listen to the people that had something to say. 
I didn't listen to the person who had the same crybaby story. And I listened to that person and I put it in action. Everything I heard that was positive and it would work, I tried it. And finally, after four and a half years, I began to make some progress. And I I don't eat food uh, for pleasure. I eat food because it keeps me uh, alive. And I eat the foods that don't make me shake because I have low sugar. So I've learned the good carbs, vegetables, and stuff like that. And that's, that's what I tried to eat. Because every time I eat something sweet, I start shaking. i got to have more. And then pretty soon, I'm drunk. I can't see. can't think. Next morning, i got a hangover. And it's just real uncomfortable uh, to, whoa, time's up. Well, I thank you very much. Seems like I never get started and I have to quit. I'm Denise from a compulsive overeater. Let me see if I can sign and speak at the same time. Sort of like walking and chewing gum, I think. Um, I am incredibly grateful to this panel, um, to the people on this panel I've known for a very long time. Marsha was at my very first OA meeting 20 years ago, and um, she was the speaker, actually, at my very first OA meeting. Remember that? And um, Joan, um, I I used to go to those relapse meetings even when I wasn't in relapse. I think they were the secret relapse meetings because they weren't on the schedule. Um, (laughs) But I found out about them anyhow. Um, relapse is a big part of my story. I um, came in 20 years ago um, and lost about 100 pounds, hit sexual abuse issues, went back out, gained back most of the weight, and came back about eight years ago. And um, by the grace of God, uh, have been um, pretty successful. And what I'm wrestling with right now, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of taking a amalgam of everything that I heard on this panel and taking it home with me and tucking it in my pocket because for me. I have found out, I, I, I believe that I didn't relapse again because I never crossed my bottom lines in terms of the foods that I know if I eat one bite of them, I can't stop eating. But what happened for me and what's happened in the past few years is that, as they say, the road gets narrower and as I've gotten healthier and, um, and my body has recovered from all the damage I did to it, there are things that, that, are, that are, are now triggering to me. And I do not want to give these foods up. I do not. And, you know, I feel like it's one of those you're going to have to, you know, pry my cold, dead fingers away from them. (laughs) Except that could be really literal in my case because I weighed 300 pounds when I came in here. And, you know, so for the last couple of weeks, I finally got it. There there are foods that I can't eat and I haven't been eating them. And um, I've I've also learned a lot about self-acceptance. In the last four or five years, I've gone through menopause. I quit smoking. And I've done a lot of things that have changed my body, thanks. And I am still, the thing that I, that I never learned after all the four steps that I've done, after all the work that I've done in this program, and I really do work this program, is that I have never gotten to the self-love. And I've never gotten to the self-acceptance. And I completely, deeply believe that until I get there, that the food is going to continue to be, will continue to call to me emotionally because it's where I get my comfort. And that's a cliche in this, in this program a lot of times, but for me it's an absolute truth. 
and I really don't want to relapse again. I don't have another recovery in me. I can't gain 100 pounds again. I can't. So, you know, I'm soaking in the wisdom here, and I feel incredibly grateful for the people who shared today because I feel like um, the path has become pretty clear to me, and even though it scares me more than I can tell you to actually think about loving myself, I can't think of anything more frightening than loving myself. That's the most that's the most vulnerable I can be. I I do honestly believe that freedom's on the other side of that, and I, I believe it's possible. Thanks. Hi, I'm Adam, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. And uh, I haven't really had the kinds of extreme struggles with. Uh, relapse that some people have had. Uh, a couple of times in the year that I've been, or a little bit better than a year that I've been coming to meetings um, and working a program, uh, there's been a couple of times when uh, relapse has knocked at the back door, and I didn't really struggle with it at all. I just rolled over. Um, and um, I, I really appreciated some of the things that our panel members talked about in terms of uh, the shame, the humiliation, and uh, the self-loathing that kind of uh, eats at us. And, you know, one of the things my sponsor is fond of saying is that it's not what we're eating, it's what's eating us. Um, and uh, I really think it's, it, for me, and I'm still working on kind of nailing this down, but it's important for me to focus more on the ways that I uh, put myself down in my own thoughts and allow other people to feed that part of me. Uh, than focusing as much on the food and what I'm eating or not eating. Because uh, if I tell myself I can't eat something, that's what I'm going to want to eat. Um, but uh, I, I really think, for me, the emotional and the spiritual focus is really what keeps me from getting back into the food um, when I'm able to stay in uh, comfortable and um, non-struggling abstinence. Um, so thank you.
I came into this program not wanting to die. And, um, I did everything I possibly could to get abstinent and to be in the program. So I got a sponsor, started working the steps, did a lot of service, and it got to the fourth step and I just stopped. And, um, and I just kept going to meetings and I kept making phone calls and I kept trying to um, uh, make deposits into my OA savings account. And um, I feel in a lot of ways I'm just depleted. And I have got so much fear and so much stubbornness. The word surrender and I do not get along. <laughs> oh, and I have a lot of pain. And um, today is the first day of my period, so I just want to. <laughs> oh, I normally cry anyway. Thank you. But I just want to qualify. Um, <laughs> as I need justification for being an emotional wreck right now. Um, and, um, you know, I just find myself unwilling. You know, I find myself unwilling to do, you know, anything except what I'm doing now. And, um, oh, and I hear voices in my head saying, no, you'd be so hard on yourself. <laughs> And I will say that in my years of program, that um, this is the first time I've been up here. It's very strange crying in the microphone. <laughs> and I'm just really grateful that you all are here and listening to me and that you're sharing your story and that I see faces nodding because when you have relapsed in something that is individual, you feel like you're the only one. Because the only people that talk about relapse are the people that are gaining weight. And it's just not true. And um, I probably would have left. I told myself that I could stand in line and then leave if I felt uncomfortable. And then the other guy said, no, you can't. <laughs> By the way, we say that there's no a OA police. But he says he's the OA police. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a compulsive overeater. 29 years ago when I came into this program, if you didn't relapse, you weren't a real compulsive overeater. When they tried to pass the thing about 12-step within, I voted against it because I thought if you didn't relapse, you weren't a real compulsive overeater. I came in, I was taught that if you straighten out emotionally and spiritually, this was the answer to all your material problems. Food is material, believe it or not. It's not spiritual. And of course, you know where they hid it in the big book? They hid it in the two wives chapter. I wasn't married at the time, so of course, why would I read two wives? It says in there, if your husband has a relapse, let him have it. Because you want to find out either God has removed it or not. God, a spiritual program. So what does a spiritual program mean? 
It means that it cannot, cannot for me be based on fear, shame, intolerance, hatred, anger, worry, restriction, all of those things. All of those things which I thought that's how you learn things. But the truth is you learn by falling down. You learn by making mistakes. They taught me when I came in that this is where you come. When you're crying and the snot's coming out of your nose, you're getting better. I don't know why I'm... I hate the word abstinence. That doesn't work for me. I don't have a food plan. I don't believe in it. I haven't eaten meat in 26 years. And it wasn't any big deal. I was in a yoga class. I wanted to be more flexible. And I gave it up gradually. I don't smoke. Five years ago, or I don't know, three years ago, my blood pressure was 212 over 190. Today it was 117 over 80 or 77, something like that. That, to me, is physical recovery. The 100 pounds that I lost, yeah, I don't care about that. I want to be healthy. I want to be sane. I want to have my feelings. I want to be part of life. The opposite of not eating compulsively is eating sanely for me. The first step, they talk about powerless over food. And then you look high and low. Where the fuck is food mentioned again? No more. It's gone. They don't talk about it. Having had a spiritual awakening. So here's the deal. I do all these things. I go to a lot of meetings. I always have. When I stopped going to meetings, I gained 100 pounds. I got over 300 pounds of this program. When I went back to meetings and worked the steps, you're not guaranteed. I'm abstinent. I'm not doing anything different than a lot of people who are face down in the food. I'm supposed to be home now, face down in the food, my normal state. I'm not, because that's the grace of God. Grace is unearned. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything. My own pain, I have to get to it in good time. But if I'm going to shame myself and be pissed off, I've gone that route where I did 500 sit-ups because I ate an extra cookie the other day. Okay, it wasn't an extra cookie. It was a whole box. I don't believe in it. Love is the only way. That's what we have here. Thank you. Okay, before we, before we close, I just want to tell everyone or remind everyone about the silent auction in room 208, and there's a boutique in room 210, and you have about two hours before dinner if you're going to stay for dinner, so go on up to the second floor and check it out. Also, in hospitality, which is also on the second floor, 201, they have a lot of promotional items from Intergroup that you might be interested in, so check that out before you leave. Okay, thank you. <laughs> now it's time to close the session. Let's thank our speakers, Marsha, Joan, and Annette.
please stand and we're going to join hands with the OA Unity Prayer.